Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence at BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. On today's pod, a cautiously optimistic year ahead for China's biotech markets. CMS proposes novel payment models for gene and cell therapies, as well as drugs with accelerated approval, and the latest startup from CRISPR pioneer Feng Zhang. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by BioCentury's 23rd Bioequity Europe Conference. Join us May 14th to 16th in Dublin, Ireland for a chance to meet the BioCentury team and for two plus days of networking with investors, CEOs, CFOs, and BD leaders from across the innovation ecosystem. More than 120 biotechs have already confirmed to present. Visit bioequityeurope.com to review the preliminary agenda. And please don't wait to register. Last year was completely sold out. I think we'll start with CMS and its recently proposed uh, series of new payment models for gene therapies, cell therapies, and drugs with accelerated approval. Selena, can you tell us a little bit about what the impetus is for these proposals? Yes. So the impetus was an executive order, which Biden put out tasking his administration to come up with actions that could hopefully lower drug prices. So in response, HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra last week submitted a report with three proposals in it. One's for generic drugs, um, which we can probably skip here. The two that are more important uh, for all of you listening out there are about innovative drugs and specifically accelerated approval and cell and gene therapies. So the accelerated approval proposal, it's called Accelerating Clinical Evidence Model. The way this works is that these are proposals for pilot studies through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So in the beginning, they'll be quite limited in their scope. And the idea is to test payment models that might help reduce costs and improve care. So they won't be sweeping in the beginning. They'll be quite limited. Um, and then with the accelerated approval version of this, the idea is to, quote, adjust payments. The details on that are lacking at the moment, probably because CMS hasn't really gotten down to the details and put them, put them down yet. But it's adjusting payments in order to make sure that sponsors complete their confirmatory trials as quickly as possible. The kinds of things that could look like could be a rebate that kicks in when a company misses a confirmatory trial deadline. So we all saw the end of last year, Congress gave FDA the authority to mandate specific timelines and milestones for confirmatory trials, as well as giving FDA the authority to demand that those trials be started at the time of approval. So this would be on the CMS side, CMS saying, okay, well, if you miss one of those deadlines, we're going to demand a rebate from you. That's one way it could play out. But the other, another thing they could do is they could impose a discount on any drug give an accelerated approval until it receives full approval, which would also, in theory, incentivize companies to complete those studies quickly. I think this is interesting because, you know, we wrote about this in our back to school a couple of years ago when we covered accelerated approval. And the idea that some people are saying, which is like, if you have a drug that only has accelerated approval rather than full approval, should it be reimbursed at a different rate? Or should it should one pay a different amount for that? 
when I was at the recent CERCI conference, all of the FDA, former FDA heads, to some degree endorsed that idea that, you know, more data, more confirmed efficacy and, I guess, safety, or really efficacy, should be rewarded with a better payment. I think what's very complicated here is that under accelerated approval, and we should note, this was a story by a colleague, Steve Usden, who's not here this week, but he noted that a lot of drugs have full approval for some indications and accelerated approval for other indications. And so it gets incredibly thorny to try and link the cost structure, the, the payments to the approval status. But I do That's think right. there's some kind of momentum in that direction that wasn't there like a few years ago. Yeah, the Medicare fee-for-service payment structure does not distinguish between different indications for the same drug. So if you take something like a Keytruda, you know, where it has full approval in some and accelerated approval in others, something would have to change about that, which even though this initial report um, from the HHS secretary is very preliminary and there's not even an official proposal yet, what, what it suggested in that initial text is that CMS would consider find a way to consider accelerated approval drugs with multiple indications, you know, differently. So let's just quickly jump to the cell and gene therapies. As I understand, there are also a few different models for this. And Lauren, you've, of course, covered cell and gene therapies generally and also reimbursement structures. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but Celine, can you walk us through um, yeah. the, the different ways that that could play out? So the, the point of this is to promote outcomes-based payment contracts. And again, this would be a pilot study and the earliest it would possibly roll out would be 2026, and it would likely be constrained to one indication. The initial report suggested maybe sickle cell disease. That said, it could look a few different ways. So it's going to be state Medicaid agencies where this pilot plays out. And what CMS wants them to do is to pool their negotiating power. So CMS would help facilitate this by doing the administration of multi-state outcome, outcomes-based agreements. And so it's saying participation by a manufacturer would be voluntary, but the incentive for volunteering would be that you would get access to all of these states via this one multi-state sort of contract, right? So you get some market access there. Okay, the ways that the report visions it could it could look, these outcomes-based payments. One would be what we've seen before. A portion of the payment is made up front and the remainder would be based on meeting some clinical milestone that's specified. Another way could be there's an upfront payment, but then there's a rebate if a specific outcome is not achieved. And then finally, there's an annuity model where it's instead of a massive payment up front, you get this fixed price payment spread over time assuming that the patient receiving treatment continues to receive whatever that specified clinical outcome is. So Selena, that sounds like we're sort of moving in the same direction that the private payers are, are going. I know with um, with Bluebird, with Betty Cell, the whole idea was that it's really hard to do these outcomes-based models, but if you want to get these expensive drugs reimbursed from private payers, companies need to negotiate individual contracts with each of these payers, and that's very difficult. So we saw Bluebird offering a sort of standardized contract to a pool of private insurers. And um, is that the same idea here? Yeah, I think 
your state Medicaid's are coordinating to have a single contract that once a company, if they agree to participate, they can get access to all of those state markets. So it's a streamlined approach. I think that's just going to be a space we're going to continue to watch. And of course, there's still a common period, right, Selena? This is there's nothing baked yet. There's a long yeah. way to go still on this. <laughs> there's the, there's a lot in here to kind of maybe freak out about, but I think right now the point is nothing's happening immediately, and what is going to happen is going to be limited. So there, uh, I think for like the cell and gene therapy part of it in particular, they're going to begin model development this year. They're going to consider announcing the specifics of a model sometime in 2024 or 2025. The earliest they would launch would be 2026, but it could be later than that. Um, there's going to be an official kind of announcement of a, that they're going to have a proposal. And then sometime later, there will be the official announced proposal. This does not constitute that announced proposal, right? And then there's a lengthy comment period. So folks out there, you have time to comment on this. Stephen, I, I want to turn now to ask you, because you did a big overview of the Asian markets and what's going on there uh, and how similar or not they are to what's been uh, going on in the U.S. on NASDAQ and so on. So what does biotech in Asia look like right now, Stephen? Yeah, thanks, Simone. Obviously, we spent a lot of time last year talking about and looking at, you know, what public companies were doing in the midst of, you know, the bear market, and which primarily we were focusing on Europe and the U.S., I guess, at the time. But, you know, the China markets were equally going through their own bear market last year. There's not a great index for looking at the uh, China biopharma space, but we pulled out some of the data and they were down about 45% at one point, sort of as a group last year, you know, down about 70% from their 2021 peak. So, you know, pretty similar type of performance as, as to what we saw to their to their U.S. Um, you know comparators, similar to what we saw here in the U.S. I mean, that pretty much meant that the IPO market largely shut down. One uh, quote that I didn't use in the story, but um, kind of left on the cutting room floor was that, you know, 2022 sucked and it sucked a lot. Um, and I think that spells it out pretty well for, for a lot of folks that were investing in the China market. But one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, though, is that when you look at that performance, what we haven't really seen, I think, you know, on NASDAQ, but they have seen in China is there's been a pretty strong recovery, actually, from what was that bear market. Um, just even in the fourth quarter, they, they basically hit their Nadir in, in October of 22. And, you know, for one particular group of companies, uh, you know, the, the Chapter 18A listed companies in, on Hong Kong, they're up 60% roughly from, from where that period is to the start of February. So there's been a pretty strong recovery. And I think a lot of that's been really been driven by, you know, just the perception of that sector is really maturing. And I think a lot of that perception of maturation comes from just the deal flow we've seen from these Chinese biotechs. Right. So you had some really cool graphics also in your story, and you actually made the point very nicely that right now the deal flow has gone in the direction, right, of a, a lot of Western companies tapping China biotechs for their innovation. That's right. right. As, as opposed to just like marketing Western innovation. We've talked about that on the podcast before. Maybe you can just talk us a little bit through before we go there. Mm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Hong Kong exchange, because it's got a few differences. It's very young, of course, the 18A chapter, got mm -hmm. a few differences from, from NASDAQ. And talk us through um, 
through the considerations that companies have for listing there and you know what the behavior looks like because they have a lot of retail investors right so, so maybe just sure through that. yeah so what we've seen I think in you know so we're coming up on the five-year anniversary and I think we're going to get to this later this year spend more time on this for sure the, the chapter 18a has been fantastic for companies looking to raise their you know raising capital IPOs I mean it's pretty common and I guess this goes as well for the star for the starboard as well raising that initial slug of capital you know obviously very common to see 200 300 400 million dollar US IPOs for these Chinese companies with that initial level of interest when they're when they're getting a ton of interest there is this clawback especially during the heady days of 19 20 even into 21 where because there was so much demand a lot of that allocation would then have to go to retail investors oftentimes those retail investors were just buying it not as a long-term investment but as something that they could just hold for the first day pop sell on that pop and then you have these cornerstone investors who end up owning a large chunk of the company and then you have sort of a smaller number of institutional investors and so what that means is you kind of end up with a, an investor base that probably a lot more narrow than what you would get on Nasdaq and it are mostly long-term holders and so you just you don't get the same liquidity in Hong Kong as you do elsewhere I mean I think one of the common ways of looking at this is you just work it out in terms of trading volume and share price and just kind of figure out you know what was sort of the trading value on a given day on average and kind of the the rule of thumb that I've heard from numerous bankers is that if you're over a million US that's okay really good liquidity is if you're getting you know over 10 million US so when you look at these companies the liquidity is all over the place you have some what you might call sort of the top tier Chinese biotechs that last three months are seeing 50 60 million in liquidity which is fantastic that's great but that is the minority there was I think it was about a third of the companies were having less than a million US in liquidity and you even had some companies that had less than ten thousand dollars per day in trades and so that just makes it really difficult for any institutional investor to either get in or get out of a stock and so the playthrough on that is that well it's great if you can raise 300 400 million in an IPO obviously as we all know what biotech needs is you need long-term capital you need access to long-term capital that I think is what we still need to see kind of play out for the Hong Kong exchange we've seen eight companies that have raised follow-on capital on the exchange some of them have been able to come back multiple times which I think that's a good a good sign I think it's still too early to say how well that follow-on mechanism works and so I think that's what's going to be interesting to see is how well those companies are able to do follow-ons or whether as they mature or move into a different phase of the company whether they whether we see some companies moving to Nasdaq you know just just to see how that works I think will be an interesting sort of play so if they can't access follow-on capital easily would they get a second listing somewhere else what would they could be that I mean we've seen several companies that have done dual listings where they've listed in Hong Kong and then they've listed for instance like on the starboard you know in Shanghai it's possible what will also be interesting I had a couple people suggest that you might start to see sort of a bifurcation of the types of companies and where they look to list that for instance because at least at the moment we we don't have as much certainty about the availability of long-term capital on the Hong Kong exchange maybe that's best suited for a a later stage company that is maybe closer to reaching commercialization closer to reaching that break-even point where 
a 300 to 400 million dollar IPO might be more than enough, right, to get them to the point to where they're independent of the markets in terms of being able to raise capital. Whereas if you're more of a platform company, and I think the IPO that we saw earlier this year, Structure Therapeutics, I think is maybe a good example of this, where they're a little bit earlier stage, a little bit more potentially of a platform play there. Clearly, I think they're probably going to be one that's going to need to raise multiple rounds of follow-on capital. And so they're, I mean, they, they raised their IPO on NASDAQ, and that's maybe a better, better situation. So there's obviously a huge pipeline of private Chinese companies that probably will be looking to go public this year and in, in the next couple of years. And so it'll be interesting to see, especially now that we're beyond the audit sort of um, debacle or issue that was causing some apprehension about Chinese companies listing in the US. Now that that sort of largely seems to be behind us, I think it'll be interesting to see which way these Chinese companies decide to go. And speaking of platform companies, the latest platform company from Feng Zhang, Area Therapeutics, is targeting novel delivery for genetic medicines. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about how Area's delivery technology kind of differs from everything else that's out there in development? Sure. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I think the, the biggest difference is that this company is using human proteins as the delivery vehicles for nucleic acid genetic medicines. <clears throat> so, they're taking retro elements or retro transposons, which are pieces of the human genome, of DNA from the human genome that are oftentimes left behind by past viral infections. And so they've found that these pieces of DNA are encoding proteins that are human proteins, but they actually retain some of the capsid-like properties of you know, whatever ancient virus caused them. And so the proteins are able to sort of encapsulate the nucleic acids and deliver them from cell to cell. So the company and its founders have found a bunch of these different proteins and they're um, sort of trying to figure out which proteins to use to get to which tissues. The benefit of using a human protein versus what we often see the, the viral vectors is that it gets around the immunogenicity problem, which is the reason that we can't dose patients multiple times. It's the reason that some patients can't can't get an AAV vector at all if they already have immunity to it. So the hope is that you'd avoid immunogenicity. Depending on the protein, the carrying capacity could be a lot larger. So when you're talking about next generation gene editing technologies, for example, the base editors and the prime editors that have really big machinery, you, you could, in some cases, put those all into one delivery vehicle. So Lauren, obviously anything out of Feng Jiang's lab is big news. I think this one garnered big money, which you can tell us about as well. I think it's addressing something that many companies are trying to address, which is the ability to deliver nucleic acid therapies, in this case, you know, gene editing ones, to any cell in the body or to cells that normally, right now it's mostly, I guess, the bloodstream and the liver. Was there some fundamental biology breakthrough that is underpinning this company's platform? You know, what, what are they able to do, as I said, with so many people going after this? What's the underlying discovery here? The underlying discovery is, is the proteins, I think. So the way that you get to the liver is using the AAV vectors, you know, viral vectors or lipid nanoparticles that just naturally home to the liver. And in order to get those types of delivery vehicles to other tissues in the body, you could select for tropism for a viral vector, or you could try to target an LMP. But the problem is that, you know, it's filtered through the liver. You'd have to use, and we've seen with, with um, 
you know, the DMD studies, for example, you'd have to use such a high dose to get enough concentration to a target tissue other than the liver that the amount that's still collecting in the liver is so high and it's it's very toxic that way. So that's been kind of the huge delivery challenge that all of these companies are facing. One thing that I think was interesting about this company is so they have 193 million in combined series A and B funding. We've seen a lot of companies trying to come up with new delivery technologies. And a lot of these companies are smaller. We don't know a lot about them. They're getting acquired by the bigger gene editing or gene therapy companies. They're doing deals with them. This company has a lot of funding. It's got a business model where they're actually developing therapies themselves. So they have a license to a cast system that Feng Shang also was part of the discovery on. I think it reflects how important delivery is. I mean, of course, this is kind of a platform in itself, but to see this kind of money behind a delivery system that could help solve the problem is interesting. Wonderful. Great. Thank you, Lauren. Well, before we go, a reminder that you can find the latest episode of our sister podcast, The BioCentury Show, featuring our one and only uh, Simone's conversation with Amgen's EVP of R&D, David Reese, at biocenturyshow.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.